0: Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Well, good morning. Grab your Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter uh, 22, and then in a little bit we will be in Psalm 23. Um, I am, uh, I couldn't wait to come back. I was here a couple years ago, and it, it impacted me personally in a profound way. I remember going home and talking with Allie, whom I'm married to, 23 years, and our two daughters, Leighton and Dallin, about it. There's something special about a church that um, is built on prayer. So Pastor Al, Pastor Chrissy, thank you. It's fun to be back. Um, I remember standing on the streets of a city and a country that will remain nameless. Some of God's greatest work is seldom recognized on the earth, and at times for good reason, because there are some places where the gospel is illegal to be preached, and there are some places where, um, if you do things in his name, uh, sometimes you draw more attention to yourself than you do him. So I was standing on the streets of one of the poorest places on the earth, and I remember the children were stretched four city blocks long. And they were standing in line. Many of them had no clothes. They had no shoes. They are standing in line. And a pickup truck um, that was old, it was dilapidated, it was rusty, had backed up. And the children were standing in line uh, behind the pickup truck holding out their hands, wanting to get a handful of rice. The individuals, um, I did not know personally, but they were throwing a spoon of rice into their hands. And the children would take... Uh, their rice, and all of a sudden, I remembered that a torrential downpour came. I happened to be in this country in the rainy season, and a downpour came, and I watched as the little children put their hand over their rice to try to keep it from getting wet. And all of a sudden, someone, uh, I'm assuming, uh, noticed that I was not from that part of the world because of my uh, the way I looked, and I had shoes, and I had on um, clean, well-kept clothing and someone ran up to me and held up an umbrella to shield me from the rain. And how many of you know in that moment the last thing you wanna do is remain dry? The individual was trying to be honorable and so I politely motioned, will you please put the umbrella away? And I just stood there and um, we were just sopping wet. I look over my shoulder when I motioned for the individual to put down the umbrella and that's where I noticed the door. It was a huge door. It was gorgeous to look at. It was ornately carved. It was wooden. But what really got my attention were the girls, the little girls standing in front of the door. And being a dad with two daughters, I happened to notice, oh, wow, they're wearing pink and purple. And look, their faces are done up. And I said to the individual I was traveling with, oh, look, the little girls, even here in the middle of nowhere, they're playing dress-up. Wearing pinks and purples. He said, Heath, they're not playing dress-up. That is a brothel. Those girls, ages 8, 9, and 10, are sold for the equivalent of 200 U.S. dollars. So he said, those girls are sex slaves. You know, when you see that and when you hear that, you become enraged. It's a righteous anger. It's an injustice. And, you know, you, you work through a variety of emotions. You become angry. You become um, saddened. It's impossible not to cry. And you begin to think, I was thinking, what can I do? I've got to somehow do something. But there's nothing in that moment I could do. And I remember eventually we make our way around the corner and we walk a few blocks and I walked into a building and I had a very different experience in the building than I did on the streets. I walked into the building and the first sound I heard was laughter and singing. I come around the corner and there was another set of girls But these girls were wearing light and dark blue school uniforms. They had light in their eyes. They were holding hands. They're twirling in circles, dancing and singing. And all of a sudden, someone rings a bell, and hundreds of children I found out later, 600 children come running from all directions and they sit down at tables. And someone does not take a spoonful of rice and put it into their hand. Someone hands them a plate of food with vegetables and rice and meat. And the children sit at a table and they enjoy a food and enjoy a meal. The difference between the children on the streets and the children in that building, which which happened to be a Convoy of Hope feeding center, it's one of the things we do. The difference is two words. One, hope. The children come from the same neighborhoods. They all live in the same slum. I don't like to call it a slum. It is their home. But they live in the same slums. All of their parents come from the same background. They are all pickers. They make their living and their sustenance picking up plastic from the road. They take their plastic to a recycling center, and they're given enough food uh, enough money to buy rice for the next day, so that they can stay alive for another few days. They believe they were placed on the earth by the gods to suffer. They are part of the lowest caste in their in their country. So when you believe you were predestined by the gods to suffer, and all you know is suffering, the last thing you think you deserve is to sit at the table and have somebody wait on you the difference between the children on the streets and the children at the table it's two words number one it's hope and we know that hope in this instance was delivered to a plate of food but we also know hope has a name his name is jesus and the other difference the other difference the other word is the table and more often than not god introduces people to their worth and their value and their intrinsic dignity at the table. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Luke 22. You heard Pastor preach on it last week. This is what Jesus of Nazareth said in Luke chapter 22, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called. Benefactors, "...but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am one among you as he who serves?" You can infer from the text that Jesus is saying, if you sit at the table, God says you are great. You can almost think of it this way, serving someone by waiting on them at a, quote, table, serving someone is almost prophetic because you are deeming them um, fit and and able and worthy to sit at the king's table even if they don't perceive themselves that way. When you prepare a table for someone and you serve them, you are speaking into their life and into their future. God says you're worthy enough to sit at the table of the King of Kings, it's true. When you serve someone at the table, you are literally serving them into greatness. And that's what I want to talk to you about today briefly. I want to talk to you about our core calling. Our core calling is to live lives of radical generosity and extreme kindness in such a way to where we restore people to their proper place of honor in life simply by being a servant of the King of Kings. Before I forget, and I already forgot, two books are available. The first book is 10 bucks, everything after that is five. If you promise to use the book that you spend five bucks to get to encourage somebody, okay? So it's cheaper than you can get on Amazon. One of them is called Grace in the Valley. Spent three years and studied Psalm 23. God prepares a table, not in the green pasture but in the valley. And so sometimes what we think is a spiritual attack is an invitation from God to feast. And then the second book is called The Sacred Chase. It's a book about the man in Mark chapter 5 whose name we don't know. But he was possessed by thousands of demons. He was defined by his circumstance. And he teaches us how to move from proximity to intimacy with God. God does not empower who we pretend to be. God does not anoint who others perceive us to be. There is a reflection you can catch of yourself when you gaze into the eyes of God and you see who you really are and God anoints and empowers you. And that's why the scripture tells us that the world is longing for the sons and daughters of God to be made manifest. There's something about gazing into the eyes of God and connecting with him. It's what we were created for and that's what this is about. So the first book is 10 bucks, everything out after that is five. Use it to encourage somebody and so into their life. I wanna talk to you briefly about the table and the privilege we have of serving others by living lifestyles of radical generosity and kindness. But before I unpack the table, let's go back. A brief history lesson, if you don't mind. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, this is what scripture says about someone named Abraham. I have known him. In order that he might command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord. And how do you keep the way of the Lord? It says, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God makes a promise to Abraham, through you all of the descendants of the earth will be blessed. I believe it's found in Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise. The promise is conditional. The condition is this. If you do righteousness and justice, then my word will be fulfilled to you. Righteousness and justice. What an interesting concept. This is the first time in the Bible where these two Hebrew words are put side by side. Righteousness is more than making pure godly decisions. Righteousness is much more about living a life of generosity that restores other people. Righteousness is not just right choices. It is literally paths of right justice. Jesus was righteous not just because he didn't sin. He was righteous because he loved and served the poor. He was righteous because he came alongside the marginalized and the vulnerable. That's why Jesus was righteous. Righteousness has everything to do with living a life of generosity that builds into the future of someone else. Justice is less about innocent versus being guilty. It is less about right and wrong. The biblical understanding of justice is more about honor versus shame. When when Abraham is invited to live a life and make sure his children and his children's children live a life of righteousness and justice, it is all about being a person who could be accused of radical generosity that restores others to a place of honor. That's one of the main reasons God encounters Abraham. Abraham was not a Christian. Abraham was not a Hebrew, per se. He was a pagan Iraqi man who is engrossed in astrology. He is not looking for Yahweh. Yahweh is looking for him. You read the biblical record and Yahweh engages Abram and God makes a covenant with him. Not to start a religion per se, but to create an unstoppable family lineage that Does righteousness and justice that lives a life of radical generosity and kindness to restore other people to their rightful place of honor? Where? At the table. Abraham's descendants became known as Hebrews from the ancient Chaldean root word Hapiru. Hapiru means the dusty ones. So if you remember, God summons Abraham out of the ancient. Um, Chaldean city Ur, um, region Ur, he summons him to live on the other side of the Euphrates River. And the people who lived on the other side of the Euphrates River in ancient Mesopotamia were called Hapiru, the dusty ones. The reason why, they lived in the open country, the winds would blow, and when they came into the ancient Babylonian city, their faces were covered literally with dust. They were called the dusty ones. All of Abraham's descendants were Hebrews, not all Hebrews were descendants of Abraham. Hapiru, after hundreds of years, the Hebrews became known by another name. Two to two and a half million Hebrews were victims of human trafficking, enslaved in ancient Egypt. And after the plagues were sent on Egypt, God emancipates over two million Slaves and they begin to wander towards the land of promise, and eventually the Hebrews will be called the Israelites. By the time Queen Esther comes on the scene, and the ancient Persian king Cyrus um, begins to rule uh, the then known Medo Persian Empire, the Israelites became known by another term, the Jews which was a slang term. If you were Persian and you said the word Jew, you had to spit on the ground. So it was a slang term, a derogatory term. So you have Abram, who is a pagan Gentile, whose descendants become known as the dusty ones, the Hebrews. The Hebrews become known as the Israelites. The Israelites become known as the Jews. And then Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew, a Hebrew, an Israelite comes on the scene. And he makes a statement in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus begins to describe a community of people. He does not say, on this rock, I will build my synagogue. He does not say, on this rock, I will build my temple. He uses a Greek word. Actually, he would have spoken an Aramaic word. In the Greek New Testament, it is ekklesia. It was a concept that Alexander the Great started. We translate it as the called out ones or the assembly. But the Romans took the word ecclesia and they tweaked it. And here's what the word meant when Jesus speaks the word church. Caesar had a Senate. So let's pretend I'm Caesar and you're the senators. And the Roman Caesar discovered it was very hard to lead the Roman empire because in the Senate there was infighting and people didn't get along. How many of you know there's nothing new under the sun? And so Caesar came up with an idea. I have a really good idea. I'm going to create a small group of people and I will call them the called out ones. And so Caesar said, I'm calling you out, I'm calling you out, I'm calling you out. And the Roman Caesar met with senators in his private royal chamber. They heard the king's voice. They looked into the king's eyes. And then the king, Caesar, whom they worshiped as God, gave them instructions of what he wanted to see um, take place in the Roman Empire. And at the end of their meeting, and this is documented in history, Caesar said, go into all the world. Does that sound familiar? Go into all the world. And so Caesar sent his called out ones out into the world to reproduce out there what they heard from the lips of their king in here. Jesus, when he says, I will build my church, he's using the word that everybody would have known. It refers to a group of people who spend time with the king. In the king's throne room, they sit at the king's table. Jesus says, I will build my church. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to create a community of people. And here's the deal. All throughout history, God has always had this grand idea. The nomenclature has changed, but the idea has remained. I will have a community of people who by living lives of righteousness and justice, Radical generosity that restores other people to a place of honor. This is my grand idea, if I'm God, whether you are a Hebrew or an Israelite or a Jew or in our context, the church, we exist on the earth primarily to live lives of radical generosity to restore other people to honor. And it's impossible to do it if we don't spend time with the king. Right. So Jesus prepares a table in the presence of an enemy called suffering. When in Mark chapter 5, he looks at the woman who had been bleeding for over 12 years, and Jesus calls her an Aramaic princess. He heals her and he restores her dignity simultaneously. Jesus prepares a table in the presence of an enemy called loneliness. When in Mark chapter one, he heals the leper. He doesn't just heal the leper, he reaches out and touches the leper. What is he doing? He is preparing a table for the leper. In John chapter eight, the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember the story? They don't drag the man and the woman out, they drag the woman. This is not just a story about adultery. It is a story about gender inequality and injustice. They drag the woman, not the man. The woman was caught in adultery. They wink at the man. You can go about your business, sir. And they drag the woman out to make a spectacle of her to somehow entrap Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He prepares a table in the presence of an enemy called injustice. In John chapter 8, by serving the woman, he puts himself in harm's way. What is he doing? He's creating a table for her. And I would suggest the greatest example, in my opinion, in Scripture, of when God serves somebody into greatness by preparing a table is found in Psalm 23. It says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So what's going on in Psalm 23? David, who is an Israelite, a part of the same community we are. David, as an adolescent shepherd boy who grew up, believe it or not, in poverty, at a time when in history, if you were a shepherd, you were considered so inept, you were not even allowed to give testimony at a legal trial. David is handpicked by God to be the king in First Samuel 16. If you would have asked anybody on the earth, who is the king of Israel, they would have said King Saul. If you ask anybody in heaven, who is the king of Israel, God would have said King David. There's a conversation going on in heaven that we are often unaware of. And that conversation has a profound impact on our life today. But rather than moving into the king's palace where he will sit at the king's table, David goes back to his vocation as a shepherd. 1 Samuel 17, God uses David to bring down the giant named Goliath. God is the hero of the story, not David. David is invited to serve in the court of the earthly reigning King Saul, and it does not go well for him. King Saul becomes insecure. Then he becomes jealous, and according to 1 Samuel 16, 14, he literally becomes demonized. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. The Holy Spirit departed from him. There are very few things more dangerous on the earth than a leader who has access to power who is insecure and feels threatened. Poverty exists all over the world because of an abuse of power. And King David runs for his life from King Saul, who issues an edict to murder him. And by the time you come to 1 Samuel 22, David, according to rabbinical tradition, is starving to death. It's not that he hasn't eaten for two days. He is literally starving to death. He is surrounded by King Saul's bodyguards. He's surrounded by people who are hunting him down like vermin. David has been promised by God that he will be the king, but his earthly situation does not line up with what God promised him. Have you ever been there? He is alone, isolated, starving to death, and what does God do? God does not send a 1,000 angels to deliver him from Saul's soldiers. God does not pluck David up and drop him into the king's palace. God prepares a table. He prepares a table in the presence of an enemy. And by the way, the enemy is never a person, but the enemy has a name. In Chicago, the enemy has a name. It's called depression. It's called lawlessness. It's called hopelessness, it's called pornography, it's called, and you fill in the blank, God prepares a table in the presence of an enemy called, who knows, for David. And what does God do at the table? Now remember, David is the one handpicked by God to be the king. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 16, where the prophet anoints David's head with oil. You can infer from the text when David says in Psalm 23, You anoint my head with oil, he's saying to God, God, you are the kingmaker. You're the, the sovereign one who has deemed me worthy enough to sit at the royal table. But shepherds also anointed the heads of their sheep with oil because there's something called the nasal fly. They would climb up into the, uh, the nasal cavity of the sheep and drive the sheep insane. Do you remember reading in the Gospels when it says Jesus was the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub? It's a, it's a reference to Jesus, the good shepherd, actually being the Lord over the nasal fly. When they refer to Jesus in that term, it's one of the most insulting things you can say to the good Shepherd. But I would like to suggest to you that David means something else in Psalm 23 when he talks about God preparing a table. Because at that time, it was a male-dominated society and shepherds were nomadic. Here's kind of the way it went down. When the sun would set over the great Sinai Peninsula, a shepherd would look off into the distance and you would see a campfire. And let's say I'm a shepherd, okay? I look off into the distance, I see your campfire and I say to my family and if I'm a wealthy, um, shepherd maybe even a few servants hey wait here we'll be right back in a few minutes and everybody knows what's about to go down the male shepherd walks up to your place of dwelling and the male shepherd of the patriarch in your family greets me so you have two men standing face to face without masks on okay <laughs> standing face to face and both families are looking on and without saying a word, you handed me a container of oil. And I took the oil and I anointed my head with it. The oil had medicinal purpose and an aromatic purpose. It had medicinal purpose. It killed head lice. And it also had aromatic purpose. We cover, it covered over my body odor. We've been wandering around the desert for days. There is no Axe body spray for the junior high guys. There's no Old Spice for the dads like me. No Bath and Body Works for the ladies. We have horrific body odor. So I anoint my head with oil. It kills head lice. It covers over my BO. And I turn around and I anoint the head of everybody in my family with oil as well. And without saying a word, after our heads are dripping with oil, we follow you. All of us, we follow you into the tent that you had prepared and without saying a word, we come in, we recline, usually on one side, and you prepare a table for us in the middle of the desert. You don't know our names. You don't know anything about us, but you prepare a table for us. And we eat a meal, typically consisting of flat bread, maybe some dates, maybe some curds and honey, honey not from the bee, but from the date. Maybe some raisins. And at the end of the meal, here's what happened. You, being the male shepherd, the patriarch of the family, you walk up to me and I hold out my cup. And you take your wine skin. And if you fill my cup up halfway, it was your way of saying, you know what, the conversation's been fantastic, but why don't you leave? But if you fill my cup up to the top, It was your way of saying, there's something special about you guys. Why don't you spend the night with us? And in the morning before you leave, we'll share another meal together at the table we prepared just for you. And at night, when everybody would fall asleep, the shepherds would take their rod and their staff that had carvings in it. And they would sit around the campfire and remember the deeds of the Lord, Psalm 7711. Now I understand why earlier in the psalm, David says, your rod and your staff comfort me. But David says, you anoint my head with oil. He does not say you fill my cup up halfway. He does not even say you fill my cup up to the top. David says, and I'm going to read it to you from the paper. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. David was chosen by God to be a king. And everything in his earthly circumstance did not line up with his his purpose. And God prepares a table for him. Can you imagine the look on the on the enemy's face when he comes around the corner and he thinks he has you he thinks he has him or her you're in the desert after all you're not in the green pasture you're in the valley the valley of the shadow of death things are not going well and he comes around the corner and he finally thinks i've got her she's hopeless i'm going to i'm going to finally defeat her I'm going to destroy him. And the enemy comes around the corner, and there's God standing there with a a towel. God, what in the world is this? And what are you doing here? I didn't expect to see you. After all, there's all these enemies. The last thing I thought I would experience is you, God. What are you doing? What's that? That's a table. Come here, Heath. I prepared this just for you. If you'll notice, there's only two chairs. I see that one's for me. You even have my name on a little nameplate right there. Who's the other seat for? Oh, that's for me, Heath. But why did you invite all these other people and they don't have a seat? I wanted your enemy to watch you and I look at one another and share a feast together. Lord, you you have all of my favorites. You have a hot dog from Jimmy's. (laughs) Everything I like, lobster mac and cheese for me. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And David, the one handpicked by God to be a king, God's strategy to serve him into greatness is to prepare a table. When you prepare a table for someone and you serve them, you deem them worthy to dine with a king and to dine with a queen. Serving someone almost becomes prophetic, doesn't it? Yeah. When you deliver groceries to someone... Who's food insecure, whose kids only eat ketchup for breakfast, because dad's gone and maybe mom is too, you're preparing a table in the presence of an enemy called poverty. When you stop in the grocery store because you can tell someone is discouraged and rather than saying, I hope to see you at church on Sunday, you say, hey, you know what? Come here. And you just grab them and you just pray for them. You're preparing a table in the presence of an enemy called hopelessness. That's what you're doing. When you, when you lean in and you understand that at this time of the year, probably more time than any other year, people are asking legitimate questions about faith as they're hearing about the resurrection of Jesus. And you're praying for people you're interceding for people to respond to the gospel. What are you doing? Your, your prayer literally becomes a table that God prepares in the presence of an enemy called sin. Where God, through his mercy and grace, serves people into greatness. I guess I want to encourage you and I also want to challenge you to find someone and prepare a table for them. When you give to missions, you're preparing a table. When you volunteer, you're preparing a table. When you walk slow enough to notice a child, you're preparing a table. And when you get down and you look at child in the eyes, understanding that the overwhelming majority of kids these days seldom have an adult actually dignify them by showing them attention, you're preparing a table. And that's what Jesus does. The great ones, the great ones, the greatest ones, sit at the table. And the God, over all things, waits on those people. Righteousness and justice, lives of radical generosity and kindness that restore others to a place of honor at the table. I'm gonna ask you to stand your feet. right where you're at I want to ask a few questions those of you who are watching online thank you for joining and those of you who are listening but for those who whether you're watching online or here or in person two questions I want to ask the first is this if you would be candid today and say you know what I don't have a relationship with Jesus the good news is Jesus didn't come to the world to just convert people to another religion he came to love people just as they are He came to take people who were spiritually dead and breathe life into their dry and barren soul. It's the gospel. Jesus lived a life that was pure and sinless, a life you haven't lived. And he died a death on the cross that you could have never died. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. He is a resurrected living God. He lived a life you didn't live. He died a death you couldn't die. And he was raised to life on the third day, something you can't do. You have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And the good news is right now, Jesus does not expect you to do anything other than pull up a seat and sit at the table. And if that's you and you would say, Heath, remember me in prayer. I wanna make things right with God. I wanna ask Jesus to change my life. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand really quick. Up, 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 up. Thank you. It's a good choice. Anyone else? Okay. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you. Second question is this. How many of you would say, you know what? I want my life to count. I want to be someone who prepares a table in the presence of hopelessness and poverty and injustice and gender inequality and depression and the list goes on and on and on. Heath, remember me in prayer. I want God to use me to prepare a table in the presence of the enemies that are trying to destroy my loved ones and my friends and my neighbors and my city and my world. Not on my watch. I want to prepare a table and through a life of radical generosity and justice, I want God to use me to restore other people to a place of honor. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and I'm going to bless you. God, I ask you to bless your sons and daughters with radical generosity and radical boldness and extreme kindness. God, give us eyes full of love and light. God, give us hearts dripping with hope. And I pray, God, that as we go about our day, day after day, night after night, God, use us to prepare a table. I pray over the next few days people you have placed on their hearts during this Easter season that literally they will hear loved ones and friends say behold God is real behold God loves me behold it's a new day in my city God prepare a table in Chicago and the surrounding area through the the way we live and the lifestyle of generosity and kindness we put on display. And for the individual who raised his hand and said, God, changed my life. I pray that you will come and encounter him right now. Come and gaze into his eyes and tell your son he is worthy to sit at the king's table. Tell your son he is loved. And I pray that your son's life will be changed beginning today forevermore. Let it be to the glory of God. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. God bless you.